Welcome everyone to Legal Tech Week for August 18th, 2023, the show where we talk about what's happening in legal tech and innovation uh, with our panel of legal tech journalists and bloggers. I'm Bob Ambrosi. I write the blog Lost Sites and have the podcast Law Next. And uh, in uh, in order of when I see him, let's introduce ourselves today. Uh, Steve, starting with you. Sure. Uh, Steve Embry, I write the law, the blog uh, Tech Law Crossroads about technology and innovation and whatever the hell else I feel like writing about. <laughs> Sounds good. And uh, Nikki Black. I am Nikki Black. I'm the uh, head of SME and external education at my case and law pay. I write legal tech columns for Above the Law, Daily Record, uh, ABA Journal, and I also oversee and write our um, benchmark and uh, legal industry reports on the my case and law pay side of things. And Joe Patrice, <laughs> looking befuddled, <laughs> not working. Is your sound not working? You're muted. All right, we'll go on to Stephanie and come back to you. We had him a minute ago. Um, hi, Stephanie Wilkins, editor-in-chief <clears throat> of Legal Tech News at ALM. I think Joe just mimes the entire show. That could actually be really cool. We don't need, we don't actually need oh, his we want voice, his. But... We want his noise <laughs> machine when necessary. Okay. All right. And Jean. Yeah, I'm Jean O'Grady. I write the blog Dewey B Strategic, and I also write a monthly column for Legal Tech Hub. And maybe Joe? Yeah. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and Thinking Like a Lawyer. I, uh, yeah, just out of nowhere, my headphones just cut out and I couldn't hear anybody. So it took me a second, but I rebooted everything. So now I'm good. Ready for some hot pre-legal, pre-ILTA action. Pre-ILTA action. It's, uh, yeah, we're all, we're... Pre, uh, Pre-ILTA, yeah. All I mean, it's also Jean, free. Right? Jean, you're not going to ILTA, right? I won't be we're, there. We're Sadly. all the Jean. Sorry, you won't be there. Okay. Getting ready to go off to ILTA. We won't be able to play bingo with the keynote speakers again. Right. <laughs> but I'll be thinking of you if there's a hurricane. <laughs> the, the only reason to go to the keynotes is so I'll know when to get to the press briefing after the keynote, uh, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, it's been, I mean, as everybody, uh, I'm sure we've all been just deluged with uh, PR people and press releases and news coming up or non-news coming up meetings to talk about non-news uh, as well. It's going to be it's going to be a crazy a crazy few days. I think they didn't send out the press list this year. I guess again, I forgot that they didn't do it last year. But it surprises me when conferences don't do that. It makes it a lot harder for the exhibitors. But yeah, well, I don't get how that did people find us then? How did <laughs> A lot of people found me anyway. I know. I'm like, it didn't prevent a lot of emails. <laughs> Do they maybe sell it like at a higher tier than everybody else? I don't know. <clears throat> they apparently, if you asked for it this year, if you reached out, they gave it to you, but not. They didn't just send it out. Um, I mean, I think it makes more sense when they send it out personally, but just because that way exhibitors know who's going to be there. But. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it, to me, it doesn't make sense because then what happens is you get, we all get like the usual suspects who know us, who know we're going to be there reaching out to us. <clears throat> but new, I'm sorry, I'm choking here today. Uh, but uh, companies that may be new to ILTA or sort of new to the legal tech world or whatever else may just not know how it all works and how to reach out to people. And so you end up 
what happens to me? I end up happens at like every freaking conference I go to, you end up getting booked by the people you've probably talked to a hundred million times already. Uh, and then you, you close out your opportunities for talking to, to uh, sort of discovering some of the other people who are going to be there and talking to some of the other people who are going to be there. You know, I always Which... want to ask conference people who are the new exhibitors, because I like to do a preview of who's going to be there that I haven't. And it's hard to get that. Like nobody, nobody proactively offers that. And I think if they want to retain new uh, exhibitors, they really ought to be doing more to let us know who's there. That's a great suggestion. I, I, think. Yeah. I will add a quick caveat that uh, to what Bob said is not that we don't love to talk to the same people we've talked to a thousand <laughs> times. We are not dismissing them or treating them bad. Like we, we love to talk to you, but we'd also like to talk to other people. Well, I well, we come we back every have... Friday and talk to each other here. So clearly we like talking to the same people over and over again. I wonder what the combined case text Thompson Reuters booth is going to look like. <laughs> yeah. Now that that deal is officially closed, now we get to see uh, Pablo and Jake wearing Thomson Reuters t-shirts instead of Case Tech's t-shirts, I guess. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, doesn't get more exciting than that. Um, <laughs> We're e we are easily amused. <laughs> um, Maybe they'll have like collector's item Case Tech swag, you know? <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, I always like I, their I always like their t-shirts. I miss those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a few of their t-shirts. Uh all right. Well, moving on to the stuff that happened this week. Uh I feel like Gene, you had probably the most bizarre story of the week. Uh in terms of I, I just can't believe that it that it happened. Um, but I suppose I should because uh judges are crazy. You want, you want to talk about it? Okay, yeah. So uh, Chief Judge Richard Myers of the Eastern District of North Carolina decided that he should ban the use of um, companies that help large law firms redistribute docket materials internally. And they specifically called out uh, Pacer Pro. They also mentioned Docket Bird Court drive and recap, but I know a lot, a lot of ALM firms have products like Pacer Pro. He didn't mention ECFX, but ECFX is similar. So it's just very bizarre to me that a court is directing or is, is actually pushing back on a very important workflow efficiency tool. Why does he care? And I think why he cares is in the last paragraph. And the whole thing seems to be based on somehow um, documents that were sealed, were not marked as sealed, and then got redistributed. And is that the, is that the fault of the technology? No. So again, it, it sort of reminds me, it's similar to judges coming up with the no generative AI rule. And I just wonder if that's who he was actually imitating. You know, like, the problem isn't the technology. The problem is, is, is someone made a mistake. It's human error. And then the next day, I reached out to a couple of companies. I heard back from ECFX, and I wrote a post on why that, you know, they're, they're although they were not called out, they're obviously appalled and think it's the wrong direction for judges to be heading in, trying to tell law firms how to internally use technology that that can give them really terrific amounts of efficiency and make it easier to to manage 
all the documents that come in from a large litigation. So to me, it's just totally crazy. Uh, but again, I'm not sure. I have to guess that the judge didn't actually understand how the product the product worked, or maybe each product works a little differently. I'm hoping that even if there is some technical way that this would cover some of these companies, they can figure out a work and workaround because the the judge pretty much says immediately everyone is to cease getting documents from they are you are to uncouple your connection to those to those information providers and I mean it's just I've I've never seen anything like that. Bob, you've seen a lot of these crazy standing orders. So what do you think? <laughs> Well, you know, something something like this had come up previously with with one was it one of the circuit courts of appeal or something had had put out some kind of an order cautioning against the use of these services, and, and then basically it turned out to be the case that yeah, the court didn't really understand how they work, and 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 they were able to to work it out. But uh, yeah, this, this is I think this is really bizarre, and and you're right. It seems like the judge is really worried about somehow the fact that sealed documents are getting downloaded by unauthorized people and yet it seems like his order is only talking about some documents that were not ever properly sealed in the first place it's like the whole redaction issue it's like it, the, the fault is on the people who don't do it properly it's not it's not the technology provider at all and and you know these companies uh you know i i'm i'm actually on the board of advisors for pacer pro and and i somewhat familiar with how they work but they're they're not downloading sealed documents uh, and and they're not storing their users' ECF credentials or anything like that. So the the judge's concerns seem totally off base. The, the the one thing I was trying to figure out this is like a standing order the judge put out. So it wasn't an order in a specific case or something. So I don't know if there's any like appellate process or something to to review a standing order. I don't I don't know how you go about challenging that. Yeah, because I mean I think you know large firms that have that they're just going to have to, I guess, remove, if they have the product, a product like Pacer Pro up and running, they're going to have to, I don't know how you undo one specific court, but they're going to have to figure out a way to to not get the documents from that court. It's crazy. Yes. So you raised you raised the comparison to the standing generative AI order. Now that order was Brantley Starr in Texas, who is a Trump judge who's trying to ingratiate himself with Republican higher ups by newsjacking things that will get his name out there. Uh, he wants to get promoted. He's trying to go with the be tough on things that will get him in the news. And that was definitely a publicity play. Richard Myers is another mid 50s Trump judge who is interested in getting publicity. His most I mean, he famously uh, did a ruling saying that the 14th Amendment no longer allows you to disqualify people for office for committing treason, which uh, if you've been following all of the back and forth about the former president is a very, uh, very important thing for him to be worried about. Now, that said, uh, the appeals court rejected that, but that was another instance where this judge was trying to do something flashy to get attention. Uh, he's never been in private practice, as far as I can tell. He wants to be, have attention, uh, and he wants to like claim that everybody is uh, 
screwing things up and trying to get in the news. So this yeah, but if you want to get attention, if you want to get attention of of Trump supporters, is is attacking a legal technology company the the way to do it? I think there's better, well, more outrageous things you could have chosen to do. Sure, (laughs) I think I think it depends on like our audience here sees this as an attack on a legal tech company. He's talking about how big firms are getting confidential sealed documents. Uh, obviously, sealed documents is a big deal in the, those communities because they uh, they they think everything's supposed to be a secret and they don't want documents out and everybody's out to get them. I think this is very much a big, big players are trying to screw you uh, with confidential stuff is what he's talking about. We see it as a tech story correctly, but I don't think that's how the audience he's reaching for is it. I see. The other other aspect of this, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that there is sort of the the notion with people of that political persuasion that big tech is bad in general. And Mm -hmm. so that's, you know, another reason that this might gain him some notoriety and clout. I mean, it, it, I think, you know, we're seeing not only here, but, but so many places that with these, with some of these newer federal judges that they are really taking advantage of sort of the immense power that federal judges have and in ways that I don't think that at least in my lifetime, I've never seen. I mean, yeah, you know, federal district court judges can be very irascible and hard to deal with and all that, but I've never seen them abuse power sort of the way that many of these judges are it's just it's just incredible yeah sarah Sarah glassmere raises an interesting point in the chat of whether uh in fact recap was was the target of this because of it the fact that it's it's downloading and then storing this stuff uh and i assume i assume the implication is because it's then bypassing the uh the paywall of pacer it's allowing people to buy while the bypass the paywall of PACER and get access to, to documents. And others do. I mean, I mean PACER does the same thing. Once you download a document. making enough money from documents. <clears throat> right. You know, and, and he actually does mention that in the order. I mean, that that is a big business. Every legal information vendor on earth is selling court documents at a price that's much higher than PACER's retail price. So... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but that, just, but a lot of them are not. I mean, besides besides free law, again, Pacer Pro. Once once a document is in, once if I download a document into Pacer Pro, it's there for everybody on Pacer Pro. They don't have to pay for it. There's no they're right, not charging. Right, right. But if if a lawyer get takes his first view and goes back and this happens, his his paralegal doesn't know where he filed it. They'll go back and will and you buy it again. You buy it every time the same yeah. document, even if you are representing one of the parties you and in a large firm this can happen over and over and over (laughs) yeah the the other weird thing about this order uh was um uh he he as part of it he instructed didn't he instructed the firms to somehow go back and reconstruct whether they had ever downloaded sealed documents through one of these systems or something to that effect and i'm thinking to myself i I have no idea how they could possibly do that uh it seems like an impossible order it to also, comply with. Yeah, because it also seems that documents have been getting sealed after the fact. They get through because they're, you know, somebody forgets to check a box, they get through and then they get sealed later. How would you ever figure that out? 
Yeah. Which goes back to your initial point that this and the same way it's related to the Gen AI order. Yeah. That it's just people like it's not a tech problem. It's a people problem. And so but people don't understand tech are trying to jump on the people problems to make it an overriding tech thing. And it's just we're just I think it's just we're to see more and more of it. But like like there's we're planning out the legal week agenda. Right. And there's an internal session that they haven't said it settled on a name for it yet but they're calling it stephanie's it's not a tech problem it's a you problem session because i just go on this rant all the time about like the lawyer technical competence minimal competence could solve a lot of these and people are blowing them out of proportion well we'd have no and we really have no competency <laughs> a, 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 a something similar to comment eight for judges and we've talked about That's that on the show was, before. And I think I part of what we're seeing, you know, not not so much from these two judges, because I think Joe's hit it on the head, but some of the other judges that are entering these orders, I think they're sort of like they don't know what to do. They they don't know how to get their arms around a lot of the technology that's coming down that's affecting what's going on. And so their knee-jerking sort of reaction, let's just throw everything out and then we can go back to quills and you know. The, the inkwell and all of that and everything will be fine again. <laughs> and I can understand all that. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. Uh, uh, so, uh, well, we don't segue, Bob. Segue. Have... <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I thought I had one. Now I've lost it. That's, that's my problem. I had one on the tip of my tongue and I lost it. Um, but I think I, what I was going to say is what we, we don't have AI guidance for judges, but we do have an article from Nikki telling us where lawyers can find AI guidance. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> wrote the article for, um, the daily record and, uh, what I find myself doing often with generative AI these days is trying to like think about what have I talked about? What do lawyers seem the most concerned about? Where do they seem hung up on things? Um, and so I try to like draft an article that will address what everyone just suddenly seems to be really hung up on. <clears throat> and so um, that's why some of them have been rants or else just, you know, don't use chat GPT for legal research. Um, and sometimes I'll get emails from people that will criticize one aspect of one article because I didn't talk about this thing. And so that'll give me an idea for another article. And, uh, you know, and so in this case, I kind of wanted to um, highlight some of the uh, guidance or task forces that have been formed in a few states that are sort of starting to bubble up where some states are uh, want to get a head start on providing guidance but they've created these task forces, which always seem to me to prevent anyone from providing guidance because it takes them so long to come up with any findings. Um, <clears throat> but I wanted to make sure the lawyers understood what might be happening in their state and that there would be guidance coming soon. And then I also provided a couple of um, links to just areas online, uh, you know, legal tech news um, and other, I, I think I had an, um, included above the law where uh, generative AI is actually being covered on a regular basis, news in terms of products, in terms of um, judges' orders, in terms of all these different things. So it was sort of a twofer article. Guidance is coming, and in the meantime, you really need to brush up on generative AI, and um, here are some places where you can really start tracking this because it's going to change quickly. That being said, going back to the original issue of guidance and 
something I just alluded to. <clears throat> I almost think these task forces are a problem. Um, I've always said this about tech, and I know a lot of you have as well, and ethics. The online and technology is just an extension of offline behavior. There's already rules and opinions that have been handed down that address analogous issues where you can just simply write an opinion specific to a certain kind of tech, but still keep it broad enough so it will withstand the test of time and the changes in that technology um, and provide guidance when it's needed. And in this case, it's needed right away because this is going to change so quickly that we can't wait until the fall or until January for these task forces with like multiple people on the committees to have a whole bunch of meetings and finally decide what it is they're going to do, how they're going to do it, who's going to do it, then who's going to draft it. You know, when a committee does something, it takes forever. And so I think that's the unfortunate, um, unfortunate part. I think one state did say that it was actually going to issue an opinion. Um, and let's see, New York's forming a task force, Texas State Bar is forming a work group, and uh, California also formed a committee and says that they may have an opinion in November. So, you know. In the ABA, didn't the ABA just form an AI task force too? Yes, they did. You're correct. Um, I think Kat, uh, Kat from Disco is out of the park. Uh, Kat Casey, maybe. Or no, she's in the New York one. I, I'm not sure, but maybe, I, I don't know. I thought they did it. They were supposed to do it at their annual meeting. I don't know whether they ever announced it, but uh, I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, certainly there's some coming, but I, I wish someone would just, like at the beginning of the pandemic, Pennsylvania did, would issue an opinion that just kind of rounds up these issues that were presented with, at least somewhat broadly, you know, to give some guidance up front and at least say it's, you know, the output is something you need to review and that type of thing. You know what I mean? At least give some general guidance, even if they can't dive into the specifics. But I don't think it's coming anytime soon, at least not in the next few months. I don't put a lot of stock in any of these task forces in terms of actually providing useful guidance <laughs> around these well, by technologies. The time, by, the time they, by the time they're done, everything will change anyway. So I <laughs> Right. I mean, I could think back to when they all started coming out with their early cloud, uh, you know, ethics opinions. Mm -hmm. And you know, Nikki, I know you wrote a lot about that back in, in the t at the time when that was all happening. But I, I mean, some of those, I mean, you know, I think ultimately those cloud ethics opinions sort of got it right in the big picture. But if you read their opinions carefully, they, they were details. They often showed a complete lack of understanding of of how cloud technology works or what could be within or without a lawyer's control with respect to cloud products. Uh, and I suspect we'll see some of the same happening with any kind of guidance they try and put out around AI. And I bet it's going to be super specific. I always go back to that LinkedIn opinion that New York issued about whether lawyers could um, fill out their practice areas under specialty. And by the time the opinion was issued, that talked about it and said lawyers can't, LinkedIn had removed that field because of that very issue. So the opinion was moot before it was even issued. And so that's a big mistake that they also make. They get so specific instead of sort of just providing broad analogous um, applications of existing law and uh, existing ethics guidelines and um, concepts. And they really do these deep dives into these very minute, you know, into minutia that's going to rapidly change, especially with um, AI, generative AI, and this type of tech in general. Well, my question is also, uh, so say all these different task forces do come up with something and they're all different. Where does that get us? I mean, 
the MIT one at least had a head start on people. And this week they had that open forum call on Zoom that I sat in on. And there are a lot of people out there in, in the industry like interested in giving them feedback. Again, it's a task force who knows where it'll go, but they've at least like they're trying to get consensus and trying to get more people on the same page. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, uh, let's see one other maybe AI, a couple of other maybe AI stories this week. Uh, one, I think, uh, was one I did uh, talking about the fact that that ClearBrief uh, rolled out a couple of new uh, features. And uh, where did I put my links? So oh, I got my links in my wrong column. Um, uh, this week uh, that uh, used AI to some extent. Um, Clear, you know, ClearBrief is this kind of, I think, really clever uh, technology that uh, essentially uh, automates the process of, of linking back to the record in a case as you're drafting a, a brief or, or even other legal documents. So that as you're drafting a brief and you're referencing uh, facts in the brief, uh, ClearBrief is able to kind of automatically go back through the record documents and find the references that substantiate those facts and then insert hyperlinks into your brief. That uh, provide the the, uh, the the links to those substantiating facts that they already did, but they put out a couple of new features this week, and I thought the the one that I thought was really cool was the timelines feature because uh, you know I think often and Steve you would you would know this better than any of us because you did a lot of litigation, but uh, in, in in litigation or in almost any kind of a matter that you're you're handling, one of the first things you have to do is kind of put together kind of a timeline of, of when right. things happen, what happened, what are the dates, uh, and that can be a really tedious task uh, going through lots of exhibits and documents and whatever else and trying to figure out key dates and events and when they happen and put them together. Uh, so their new timeline feature just totally automates that. I mean, basically, you can point that out a set of documents uh, and ask it to generate a timeline. And it's going to go through and pull out the key dates and pull out the key facts and put them all into a table with links back to where in the record uh, is the document or whatever that provides this date. Uh, and and it's 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 smart in the way that it does it because it's, um, you know, it, it, it associates dates and events that aren't necessarily explicitly connected in a particular document. I mean, what, there may be, you know, at one point in document, maybe may talking about certain things that happened on a certain date and then a specific reference to uh, something else that happened uh, is able, they're able, it's able to connect it to that date that's being discussed and put that in the timeline. Um, and I think, you know, for, for all the sort of gee whiz stuff that we keep talking about with regard to generative AI or the potential for generative AI, I think a lot of times it's it's these really kind of specific uh, tasks and, and time-saving tools that really can prove to be the most beneficial for, at least for, for actual lawyers out there practicing. I mean, this is a huge time saver uh, and it's just really clever and it looks like it works pretty well. I haven't used it myself, but I did see a live demo of it and uh, uh, it certainly looked like it worked pretty well. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right, Bob, about the importance of doing that. And you know, there are some products out there that purport to to offer timeline kind of apps, but almost every litigator that I've talked to to a person are not very satisfied with any of the existing apps. So, you know, this could be an important step. And it is it's extremely important in a case because you, you start to see relationships and 
you know, why things happen only when you put together this, these kinds of timelines. And they're hard to do, at least manually. They're very hard to do. Yeah. And also, you know, when you start off a case, you have like the basic events, right? You know, a timeline of events. But then as you get discovery and conduct depositions, there's more and more, you know, other events added along the way that lead up to the accident, if you will, or the slip and fall or whatever the case may be. And sometimes it's hard to, you know, if you're busy deposing somebody to, um, you don't always jot down what they just said, or you miss it. Um, And so I think that's where that that sort of functionality can come in really useful because it can look over all the documents in the entire case and also medical records. Sometimes you can't even read what the doctors wrote, you know, although they're more and more often um, uh, no longer handwritten, but you know, it can just sort of go through all of that and um, help fill in all the gaps in the timeline in a way that would be really tedious. Um, And typically you just give that to an associate and it was, the deposition summaries and creating timelines was a good way to learn how the course, you know, to learn about how to litigate, but boy, was it tedious and boring to do, which is why it always got handed down to us when I was a litigation associate. Oh, I was. Hey, maybe. Always. Oh, maybe. I I was wondering, maybe have we, have they considered giving this for free to the Trump defense team in the January 6th hearings? (laughs) Because if they gave it to them, maybe they wouldn't have to wait until April 26 of 2026 to have a trial. They could like get all of that data in a row and see like the, yeah, that's a marketing opportunity than just throwing it out there for them. They couldn't even get e-discovery vendors to take on like the Mar-a-Lago stuff originally. People didn't want to be associated with them. And for good reason, if they had it on prem, it would have been flooded by the pool. So not not only that, but there seems to be a perpetual getting paid problem with working for certain (laughs) ex-presidents. No, but I agree. Uh, like the comment that partners don't think associates can create adequate timelines. As somebody who always had to create them, I don't think I could create adequate one, adequate ones manually. It just wasn't. There's too much. Very like, hard. And even the tech was so low. It was so low tech that if there was something, it would throw off my whole even formatting of it. It was yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. The only other kind of AI related story we had this week was just Stephanie. You you would you noted the uh, the fact that they case next Thompson Reuters closed the deal. I think we already mentioned that, but I mean, is there uh, is this uh, is this significant uh, in any way? We, we knew this was coming, but but it's come. So uh, what do we yeah, think? I, it's pretty much what we suggest uh, what we knew. The one line in the uh, PR that stood out to me was that I mean, this is again very surface level, but it said that they're already TR and Case Techs are already collaborating together on a legal drafting solution that leverages Westlaw, practical law, and document intelligence. Which I mean, who knows exactly what that means, but it was the first kind of hint <laughs> at where this is going or what they're doing in any way. So, yeah, yeah. it sounds good. Uh, all right. Well, let's see. We've got we've got a couple of uh, stories of how law firms are screwing up. Uh, we've got <laughs> we've got maps and we've got succession planning. Should we should we start with maps, Joe? Do you want to... <laughs> maybe no, maybe yes. Should... <laughs> oh, there he is. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, no. I just went over to the, the our time code and to write it down. Uh, yes. Uh, so it's not even oh, maps. It's doesn't... just a map maptician uh, who. Uh, despite map in the name, what they really do is a, kind of a hybrid office uh, management tool. So 
they have a survey it that's a out. map of the offices. They have a nice little map. It shows office. a map of the office and who's in it and whatever. Yeah. Uh, they have a survey that's out recently, uh, as well as uh, they cite in that survey a Microsoft survey too. And my takeaway from it, like while they're talking very much on the technical side, my takeaway was these law firms who are slowly and surely creating these office mandates or everyone has to come back or you won't get your bonus if you aren't in the office four days a week, uh, they are really going to find that they've screwed up. Uh, the Microsoft survey found that even the threat of a tighter labor market was not not changing the way in which people uh, felt about mandates and that in fact they were more or less uh, going on the market. And, they, and Microsoft is looking at everywhere. Uh, the legal market for talented associates uh, is is still tight, uh, even though it's slowed down quite a bit and there are layoffs in certain sectors. If you're the sort of person who's good enough to work, be working at Skadden these days, uh, you are likely to get another job if you choose to. Uh, that's That means, and that's why a lot of these other firms haven't followed suit with uh, these mandates, because they know that the market is eventually going to turn and these folks aren't happy. Uh, even the threats aren't working. And that's what the Microsoft uh, survey had said. What Maptician in their survey worked out was that the ways that well, Microsoft also found that the way in which you could potentially motivate people to be back in the office is by having some way of guaranteeing to employees that coming to the office was in their best interest, even if they weren't needed in the office. Because that's the issue. If a, if lawyers are needed in the office, they're coming to the office anyway, right? If you have a deposition, you're going to the office. It's not like you're saying like, oh, nope, that's my day at home. Uh, the issue is when will will they come on days where they don't need to come? And the answer was up an astounding number, something like 74% will come if they think their friends are going to be there. Uh, where Maptician came in with their survey that I thought was interesting was that one, uh, they cited an ILTA survey by that found that most law firms had not invested in any sort of technology uh, related to hybrid work. And the technology they considered their investment in hybrid work was Outlook, which is a work. That's work. That's not hybrid. That That's just that's. I, to use my least favorite phrase, table stakes when it comes to being a lawyer. What Maptician said, though, was that presence software, which is kind of what they do, something that says, hey, you can go on a website and see this person's going to be in the office these days at this times and for these reasons. And you could say, hey, oh, my mentor that I like, my mid-level mentor that I really like is going to be in the office on Tuesday. I'll come in Tuesday. That that kind of technology, when implemented, was doubling attorney in attorney attendance in the office. That's the sort of stuff you need to be doing if you want to have people in an office. Mandates are not it uh, because people like flexibility. They don't even care about having to go to the office. They it's not like they're looking to not work. They're working from home the same way you trusted them to work from home on Saturdays and Sundays in big law. But they like the flexibility. They like to know they don't need to pay for childcare on Wednesday because they can do that from home most weeks. If you give them that flexibility and entice them with their friends are in the office these days, so that group comes into the office those days, you're going to get more people. Uh, and 
anybody who thinks that a down market is the way they can get away with leveraging associates is going to have a rude awakening when the market picks up and all of those, the overwhelming majority of the AMLA 50 who haven't done this yet uh, start scooping people up. I mean, you know, flexibility I also. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gene. <laughs> no, I was just going to say. I want to remind. My experience was that even before the pandemic, lawyers were not necessarily in the office. This is actually right. not new. I think it's just that it's like the the cat is out of the bag, because I, you know, I remember just walking through the halls looking to to try and ha have a casual conversation with people and going office after office after office was empty. And it was like, you know, what I, you know, at that point, I didn't mind being in the office, but again, I, I don't think the, I think partners have almost never been working in the office. Right. Right. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's part of it. I think too, Joe is it's the flexibility, but it's also the, the independence. I mean, it, I mean, you can see a lot of studies and, you know, the two, two traits of lawyers, particularly good lawyers. And one is skepticism, because, I mean, that's what we do. And two is independence. We really good lawyers value their independence. And I think a lot of the best legal thinking stems from the ability to have that independence, to not be told what to do. And I think that's whether it's a partner or, or, or an associate understanding and believing that the people you work for value that independence and are going to give it to you. I think that's important. I mean, I, I always chafed when I was told you have to do this, you have to be here, you have to be there when there was no reason for it. Um, also, so it's a tough problem. It's also just well, a if it, Oh, I was just going to insert. Oh, sorry, Stephanie. <laughs> I was going to insert, I was going to insert from the chat while it's relevant that, uh, Joshua makes a point in the chat uh, for people listening who don't have access to that, that uh, Cushman and Wakefield has done a survey finding that even the partners don't think they're going to come into the office right. more than three days a week. Well, right. And it's yeah. a matter of like trust and respect, right? I mean, your your employees are adults. These mandatory rules, like when they have to be, you have to be at the office, even though nothing is going on. It's just, I mean, it's treating them like children. And like, do you really not trust your associates enough to get their work done when they've proven over the last three years that they're getting their work done? Well, it's and it's more than the three years. They, I mean, particularly in big law, your, yeah. your associates, you know, they they bust their ass in college, they bust their ass in law school, they work themselves to death mm -hmm. to get where they are, and now you're saying we don't, we really don't trust you to work at home, even though you've shown that you can. But we still want to, we want to see you in the office. Yeah. Well, and along those lines, it's it sort of couples with this I saw an article some of you may have seen it about how the New York City uh New York City's mayor is they're basically just saying people aren't coming back to these offices like it's not happening let's all just accept reality um and let's start converting a lot of this office space to living space so that there's you know this um shortage of apartments and everything else in New York we can convert it so that it'll um allow more people to have affordable places to live and so you know and, and during the announcement of this. He said, let's just stop pretending that everything's going to go back to the way it was. It's not. And let's accept this new reality and move forward. And I think that at some point, everyone's going to have to realize this. And maybe um, just like as is the case with technology, it's going to take people in the legal space a little bit longer, but <laughs> it's although, the reality. Although 
once people can walk to work, they might actually show up. Right. I mean, think right. of people who have like a two-hour commute from the outer boroughs. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there was one. Was it Davis Polk? That yeah, maybe Davis last Polk week renewed. announced that they yeah. were they were not only going to renew, they were going to expand their space. Thirty thousand more that, square feet or something. Yeah. Yeah, I was sort of stunned, but I mean, yeah, I agree. I think real estate may be the one thing that will force that will cause firms to dramatically change their policies. Like when the twenty-year lease for. 40,000 square feet or whatever it is comes up, they're going to say, oh, we can do with 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and of course, you know, the, the problem is like with the with the firm that, that expands and renews its lease. So now they sort of have a vested interest in making people be in the office to, to justify their stupid decision to begin with, yeah. right? <laughs> Davis Polk made the situation worse. They took a bad situation and made it worse by negotiating to get more space. Uh, it, it was, yeah, it, it's it's a real interesting, I mean, part of the problem, I mean, to be fair. Maybe they're going to add a dormitory. <laughs> oh, see, there you go. Yeah, th that's the affordable housing for people who have uh, the student loan debt from going to Columbia. Uh, no, the, uh, the whole point about this Microsoft survey finding that people want their work friends there, I feel like is part of this situation too, which is that, Partners, earmuffs, if there are any partners out there, partners feel like bossing people around is their version of friends. And they they feel lonely in the office and they want to force people to be in the office so they have their version of friendship. Uh, and so in some ways, I get their mandate because that's their way of having friends. I don't know if it's that their way of having friends or that's their way of uh, feeding their egos. But their yeah. version, their version of friendship. That's how they define ego stroking it's, is how they define friendship. I mean, I understand that. It's how I define friendship, too. Power and ego. Yes. <laughs> the other thing I was going to. Uh, sorry. I feel like we have 10. Someone else was saying something. Oh, I was going to say, I absolutely get it from the associate perspective, though, because, you know, when you went in, if you had to be there all the time, it would be great if your associate friends were there. Or even now, like I have some mandatory in office requirements. And to the extent we're allowed to pick certain days, we all go in on the same day because we get to talk to other people. Right. We'd rather not, but yeah. One thing that I think is a super interesting outcome that is sort of beyond the legal space, because I always kind of like to take this bird's eye view of things, but um, is how the pandemic and this remote work trend is impacting the actual um, infrastructure of our cities and the way that we um, interact. So the place I really first saw it happening was in wine country here in New York. I think I may have mentioned this previously on this show, but the wineries all completely changed the way that they do tastings. Now they have people outside enjoying the space even post pandemic. And you also see it in cities where the restaurants are now all, um, they're blocking off roads permanently and they're allowing people to have outdoor seating even in the winter. Um, and I think you're also seeing it with this the, the cities are all going to shift because they're all going to have to start to do this because offices are never going to quite go back to what they were like, regardless of what everyone wants to happen. And so you're going to start seeing cities changing the, you know, the, um, not the infrastructure, but, you know, people are going to, there's going to be more housing in the cities and less commuting, I think. And you're going to see the, the, the interaction change, like you're going to have a lot more people living in certain spaces that used to all be office space. And I really think it's going to sort of change the structure of our lives in some really interesting ways. 
four or five years down the road from now, it'll probably all settle. And I think things are going to look different if the machines haven't completely taken over. That is. So we'll see. <laughs> so all, all of you, all of you had great thoughts about this survey. And I, I found myself hung up on realizing that this whole new jargon around this this whole work from home world or or hybrid world that I just was like totally tuned out to. I mean, I, I read I read the first paragraph of the of the survey to start talking about RTO compliance. Yeah. And I actually had to stop and think, what the hell is RTO compliance? I don't even know what that is. And then I realized return to office. But but then there thing, things like like Joe alluded to earlier, presence technology. I didn't know presence technology was a thing. And and they don't talk about friendships among attorneys in an office. They talk about peer seeking behaviors of attorneys <laughs> in offices. Presence <laughs> technology supports peer seeking behavior of attorneys. Uh, it's, it's it's really kind of funny the way they talk about it all in a, in a way that's just like uh, a different language. I don't know. That's like they enlisted someone from a psych department. Like that's exactly because yeah. I was a psych major and that's exactly the kind of language we would use. Although yeah. I was going to side note that the new wine tastings like in the Finger Lakes, I love it. I went up there during 2020 and they like, instead of having to listen to a story behind everyone, they sort of gave you the wine tasting like a beer flight and you got to be on your own. <laughs> yeah. Well, moving, moving on to some more uh, bad behavior by law firms, I guess. Uh, Steve, you, <laughs> uh, you've got a, a, a piece this week that talks about another way that uh, some law firms are. Well, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, the Geek and Review podcast interviewed uh, Laura Leopard of Leopard Consulting, and she had done a recent study about succession planning in law firms. And so, I, you know, I regularly check what's what's who the guests are going to be in a number of podcasts, including yours, Bob. Um, and I almost didn't listen to it because I thought I succession planning, like, yeah, you know, we beat that to death, but, um, but the, but I did listen to it. And uh, the, the conclusion that, that uh, Laura Leopard reached from the survey was that despite all the talk about succession planning, law firms just aren't doing it. They just don't really by and large care, which, you know, made me sort of think, well, okay, well, why is that? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, it, you know, a lot of the reasons that we have, that there are issues with law firms, including the return to work debacle are kind of stem from, from the same thing. I mean, you know, first of all, law firms are consensus uh, decision-making, have a consensus decision-making model. They don't have a chief executive officer or a hierarchy that can make firm decisions. Uh, they have to all huddle and consult. You may have a management committee, but but let's all face it. I mean, real power in law firms generally come from the people that have the most business and most origination credit, whether they're managing partner or, you know, got the corner office. So when you start talking about succession planning, you're talking about, A, changing leadership and letting more people get involved in leadership and be turning over clients to uh, younger lawyers. And it's in the turning over clients to younger lawyers, you run right up against, okay, if I turn over my client to a younger lawyer, I'm going to, could I lose my origination credit? If I lose my origination credit, then I won't have the same level of clout that I have in the law firm that I do now. And I'm frankly not terribly interested in doing that. Layer on that the fact that in most law firms, at the end of the year, what happens? Profits are divvied up, right? And generally, they're divvied up on the basis of 
how much business you brought in. Now there are generally tweaks and you know subtractions and additions to that, but by and large, the person that brings in the most business is going to be compensated the most. So, and it's a zero sum game, right? So if if I get more compensation, I get a bigger, bigger percentage of the pie than somebody else has to get less. Now, all of that sort of means, okay, I'm not terribly interested in giving up origination credit. I'm not terribly interested in letting more people work on my files and giving up credit. I'll lose cloud. If I lose cloud, I, I can't make the rules and I'll get less compensation and somebody else will get more. Then, you know, you, you, you factor all of that with the notion that at the as of January 1, and just about every law firm in this land, every partner walks in and where do they start with their their numbers for the year? They start at zero. You don't have a bank. You don't have a carryover from the last year. You start at zero. So now you're immediately thinking, how am I going to get my credits to maintain my standard of living, my leadership in the firm, and my clout? And I'm not giving up a penny because I don't want to get to the year end of the year and have less. And then there's one final thing, right? As we all have heard, no matter how what program you put into a place, into a law firm, what kind of technology you want to, uh, them to adopt it, what is the single thing that almost every partner will say to you when you go to them to, to give them a new, new idea? And that is, well, that'll work for just about everybody else, but I'm special. My practice is different. Uh, as, and I, because of the nature of my clients, I just can't turn over any of my practice to somebody younger because they're not going to serve it as well. And my clients depend on me and depend upon me in a very special way that nobody else has. So, you know, you put all that together and I guess it's not terribly surprising that law firms are not partners in law firms, particularly law firms, partners with, with cloud and law firms are just not terribly interested in uh, succession planning, which is going to reduce their role and in compensation. Uh, and so I think that's, that's why we see such, um, you know, so, so little of this being done. Laura Leppard's conclusion though, was you know, probably more optimistic than mine. And hers, she said, well, you know, given the times that we live in, given the tight, tight labor market, given what younger lawyers want, law firms to to attract and retain talent are going to have to change. They're going to have to bring more people into the leadership tent. They're going to have to be more flexible. Maybe I'm not so sure about that because when, when you look at the way most law firms work, you've got people at the top with big origination credits that are bringing in a lot of money. Younger lawyers, if you want to make money in a, in a law firm, what do you do? You go find your own business. And, it doesn't take a whole lot of those kind of people to really drive the business of a law firm. So if I bring in my own business, I maybe start with a hundred thousand and I grow that in 10 years to $5 million. Then am I interested in doing something different than the guy that brought in $5 million right before me? Nah, not so, not really. So, yeah, I, I'm not very optimistic that things are going to change. Um, uh, in the future, I hope Laura is correct that they will, but I'm I'm not as optimistic. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to get up on a soapbox, but I, I did. <laughs> we always need a good soapbox, at least once a week. Come on. <laughs>
Yeah, it was like, you, did you, wrote, you, you not? wrote a soapbox article about it. So <laughs> you did mean to get on a soapbox. That's okay. <laughs> um, I think that's a good John? point in the comments. I was thinking the same thing. It'll be interesting to see if generative AI is the thing that finally upends a lot of these uh, law firm structures that uh, create friction and resistance to change. We all keep saying something's going to do it. Maybe this is what's going to actually you know, be the tipping point. We'll see. At least, we'll at, least see. End, at least injure it a little bit. Was was Leopard Survey looking at firms of different sizes or was she focused on any particular sector? I, I think it was the larger law firms, Bob, but I'm not positive about that. Because I suspect it's a problem across firms of, of, of I, all I, sizes I, I other than essentially I, solos, but... The, yeah, but maybe for slightly different reasons. You know, the bigger yeah. firm has different... Uh, different uh, characteristics and maybe the smaller firms but you know for a while that's all everybody every conference you went to that was some succession planning and you know as i said in my article I, if you propose to to do a presentation on succession planning now you're probably not going to get invited to speak <laughs> well the 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 billable the billable hour is still going to keep going up at places like davis polk because somebody's got to pay right. for that extra thirty thousand <laughs> square feet right, that right. they got yeah. That still blows my mind because I mean, we've had so many discussions about how real estate is probably driving this in a lot of scenarios. And like, I get it. Like, I think it was Gene that said when that 10 year lease runs out, maybe we'll yeah. see something. But to double down and get like 30,000 more square feet is just. Uh, I wonder. Oh, I mean, law firms like Davis Polk see themselves as fundamentally different from, you know, special other snowflakes. snowflakes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wonder, so I had, I had a theory. I, I don't know enough about Davis Polk's portfolio of clients, but I did wonder if they represent some like people very long on commercial real estate. And if part of this, and like, it, it's funny, but it's also it. you like, know what? Yeah. yes, you nailed it. Yeah. I, that, that's yeah. It. Like, I've always, I do wonder if they represent say uh, a major New York landlord, uh, if there's a part of them that's like, look, we've got to kind of fucking do this. We got to get a giant, a giant buy because we got to show that we care about this. Or REITs well, or something like and it, that. Yeah. And, it, and it's, and it's, yeah, not REITs, necessarily, yeah. it's not necessarily that they have a big chunk of business from from some of those landlords because a lot of those landlords like banks, you know, they they will spread their legal business around. It's it's the idea that if you help them, they may help you, and you may be able to carry some favor and get some additional business from them if you come out and push these guys. I, ever since you mentioned that, Joe, I've kind of suspected the same thing. Well, and that's that reminds me of a really important lesson that I actually learned in law school that I don't think was actually the intent of the lesson. But um, oftentimes when things don't quite make sense and people are doing things that seem to be go against the grain or just seem to be um, just lack common sense, there's some sort of like selfish reason for what they're doing. And so we uh, there was a, in con law, there was a case that related to the um, airports in D.C. And there was some sort of regulation issue that was going to prevent the um, Ronald Reagan airport from opening up. I can't remember what it was when it was new and or something that would prevent it from but operating. It's actually in Virginia. I mean, that's a funny thing. They It's it's defined as being in DC, but it's technically in Virginia. So maybe that, they had to move yeah. it geographically. Okay. Well, but it was the closest, it's the closest one to DC of the three airports in that 
two or three in that region. I can't remember. But yeah. what the Supreme Court did was they basically ignored all precedent and said, let's let this one stay open and run all the time. And I, the professor asked us, you know, who knows why? And everyone had all these ideas. And he's finally like, no, it was the best thing for the Supreme Court. They don't want to drive half an hour. You know, they want to get there in five minutes. And, and for Congress. Uh, and for yeah, Congress. Congress too, yeah. So that was, it was one of those things where really it was just for their convenience that they completely ignored all precedent and like overturned, <laughs> I don't know. But so that this is the same thing. They're doing stuff that doesn't make sense. Actually, it makes perfect sense from their, from a point of self-interest, you know, with these law yeah. firms. I think that's, I think that's probably your hundred percent correct about that, Joe. It's probably what's driving that. You're always correct. You're the best. We love you. Oh, see, see, somebody figured out how I define happiness. See, as a law firm partner. We we need to stop right there and (laughs) let let Joe (laughs) gloat for uh, another week um, as we all go engage in some uh, peer-seeking behavior down in uh, Orlando for the next few days. And I hope to, I I don't know if we'll, I'm I'm here next Friday. I don't know whether other people are going to be around next Friday. We'll certainly have a lot to talk about if we do this next Friday. So I'll be uh, back. uh, All right. Well, we'll be back next Friday and to have lots, uh, I am sure, to talk about coming out of ILTA. And uh, until then, I hope everybody has a good week. Hope everybody's uh, going to ILTA has safe travels and look forward to seeing you there. Look look us all up. We'll all be there except Gene, who's going to be doing something else. I'll be holding down the (laughs) fort. Holding down. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, around. Thanks for listening. Good weekend, all. Come on, guys. Have a good weekend.